We're continuing our journey through the book of Romans, a journey which has landed us in the 11th chapter today. And today we have a daunting task in front of us as we look through Romans chapter 11, the vast majority of the chapter in one Sunday. And when I say it's a tall task, I'm not saying it's solely based upon the amount of scripture. It's not just because there's a lot of verses. Uh, It's not just the amount of scripture that we're looking at today. It's the actual text itself. And you'll see in your outline, there's a quote that shows there's at least one other preacher from New York City who agrees with me. Tim Keller says, we need to recognize that this chapter, speaking of Romans 11, is one of the most difficult in scripture to understand. And I'm not saying that just to be cute or funny, but just to be honest with you, preaching is hard work. Preparing to preach is hard work. And preaching this text, I find particularly difficult. And even now, having done my work in preparation and study and prayer, I'm still left a bit wanting. Because when it comes to these matters, when it comes to the matters of looking at the text of Scripture, that's always difficult to do and something we don't ever want to rush through. But particularly when we look at Romans 11, which speaks about God's love and plan for Israel, uh, I can find it to be a bit daunting, as I'm sure you do as well. I remember early in my Christian walk, uh, I was a bit frustrated because I happened to know some folks who were completely, positively, absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, obsessed with anything and everything associated with Israel. Do you know what I'm talking about? Just completely obsessed with anything having to do with Israel. Someone sneezes in Israel and it's a sign of things to come. Or it's my responsibility as a Christian to send them a Kleenex or plant a tree or whatever. There's just constant, every law, ha, Israel, Israel, Israel. Every little thing was something that was a big call to action and it was a big deal. So I became very disenchanted with the whole thing and I was a really, really young Christian and just decided I'm just, I'm going to pay no attention to it at all and I'm just going to focus on Jesus, which probably isn't a terrible thing to do, but just decided that I'm just, it, it, it just put the whole idea of end times and eschatology and trying to understand these portions of scripture it just left a bad taste in my mouth. Years later, years later, I was having lunch uh, with a good friend of my family's down in Columbia, South Carolina, and his name is Ben Box. I was having lunch with him, and I was just talking about, we were talking about the word, he really loves the Lord, and he's, like I said, good friends with my in-laws. And I said, is it just, what do you think? Is it possible for me to go my entire earthly life and really just not care about all of these things when it comes to end times, right? Because Jesus is coming, when he comes, he wins, therefore I win that's fine. That's really all I really care about. And everything else will just pan out. And if he comes, if this happens and then this happens and it happens in this way, that's fine. I'm happy to be wrong. But the bottom line is he's coming. When he comes, he wins. And when he wins, I win. And we'll go to heaven anyway. Do I really have to understand these things? And he looked at me with these big eyes, because he always looks with big eyes. And he said, well, he said, that's a good question. He says, but don't you want to always be fed by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. (sighs) How do you answer? Yes, you win. Yes. And he's right. So I don't want to allow the frustration of people who obsess over these things and have charts all over their walls and read over every little event happening in the world as a sure sign of things to say these things don't matter because they most certainly do. There's another quote in your bulletin that shows, uh, that's a quote from John Piper. That's an excellent quote. He says, no chapter in the New Testament reveals more than Romans 11. It is all about the way God has acted and will act toward Israel and toward the nations in history. And therefore, it is all about 
God, who God is and what he is like. So we don't want to skip over these things just because they're hard. And we don't want to skip over these things just because people sometimes obsess of them ad nauseum. We want to look at the text and see what God says because we should want to be fed by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. How many of you, by a show of hands, can remember the last day that you had that you would say, this was just a bad day? Does a day come to mind? Raise your hand if you just remember, I had a bad day. Did you remember that at all? Okay. Let me tell you about Monday, October 12th. Monday, October 12th was just a hard day for me. It was a really hard day on a number of different levels. I came home that day and Sarah said, so how was your day? How'd this meeting go? And she's, and I told her and she said, wow, God has pushed every single one of your idle buttons today. And I was like, yes, he has. Thanks for that interpretation. But she was right. She was 100% right. That's just, but it was a hard day. It was a rough day. And Brad Bigney, who is with us today, noticed that it was a bad day. And he was in some meetings with me and knew that it was a bad day. So he sent me a note the next day to encourage me, which I got in the mail later on that week. And it greatly encouraged me. And it was such, so kind and heartfelt, filled with scripture, and just encouraged me in who I was, who I was in Christ, and got me focused on the fact that it was really just a bad day and that he was confident in me and confident in God's work in me. And I was encouraged. Secondarily, as I was looking at that note, maybe not as I was looking at it, but not long after that, I thought to myself, you know what? It's, it's been a while since I sent my kids a note. I like to do that from work every once in a while because they get all excited about getting mail and Emma runs down to the mailbox and opens it up. So I thought, it's been a while since I sent the kids a note. I think I'll send them a note. So I did that later that week and sent them a note and it encouraged them. So that was, that was really cool. So God used Brad's letter in my life in two ways. You see that? There was the primary purpose for which it was sent, which was to encourage me. Uh, Brad had a person in mind, me. Brad had a purpose in mind, right, to encourage me. And the, the letter accomplished the purpose for which it was written and uh, brought about a secondary application for me as I looked at this and thought, you know what? It's been a while since I wrote a note to my kids. I think I'll write them a note. Why am I telling you this story? Well, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul wrote a letter and had a group of people in mind, namely the church at Rome, and had a purpose for which it was written, which we'll look at today. But I also want to take some time to make some secondary personal application for you so we don't just leave here knowing how to handle or interpret uh, geopolitics, including but not limited to what do we do when people in Israel sneeze. Does that make sense? I don't want us just to look at Romans 11 and look at the facts of the, of the chapter and the facts of what's being said there and think that now we just have a worldview to interpret things, but there's no personal application for us today. I would like to also take some time, and as we work through this portion of Scripture, which we'll never in one Sunday get to look at everything, but as we look at it, I want to make some secondary application for you as well and for me as well so that we can be applying the Word of God to our everyday life. So that's the plan for today. So let's bow our heads in a word of prayer, and then we will get right to it. Father in heaven, we come before you, and we are grateful to be alive. Lord, we're grateful to be here, grateful for what you're doing among us, and excited to dig into your word today. And Lord, we don't count that as a small thing. We don't come here thinking that we are old enough or wise enough or well-prepared enough to understand your word. We depend upon you. 
We need your help. We need you to work through me as I preach and work through everybody as they hear to rightly divide the word of truth, Lord, to cut it straight, to apply it, and to be moved by you, Holy Spirit. Be with us now, we pray, as we open up your word. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look at Romans 11, we need to remember the context that it falls within. Okay, so it really started back in this new section of scripture that started in Romans 9. And in verse 6, if you were to look back there, which you can or just listen, Romans 9 and verse 6, uh, Paul says, It is not as though the word of God has failed. Paul is dealing with this question, not solely just what about Israel, but in the greater picture of, has God's word failed? Has God's word failed? Has the word that has gone out not accomplished the purpose for which it was spoken, for which it was created? And what we saw in Romans 9 and 10 was Paul answering the question as to whether or not God's word has failed. And he says it with a resounding no. God's word has not failed and will not fail. But here, Paul asks a question that we might read rather flippantly, but we're certainly not flippant to Paul. Look in your Bibles at Romans chapter 11, verse 1. Paul asks the question, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. Now, we read these things, we think, you know, has God's word failed? Uh, Has God rejected his people? Uh, By no means. That's Paul, yeah. He He wants to know if he's rejected his people, but he hasn't. And we read them very flippantly. But you have to understand, this was a big deal to Paul. This was a big deal to the people at Rome. Uh, When he says, has God rejected his people, Paul isn't saying, has God just refused to receive his people? Has he just like turned away? It's not a passive question at all. The the Greek word translated rejected is apotheo, which means to thrust away from oneself. So it's not just has God kind of turned around and, you know, given his people the cold shoulder. It's has God thrust away the people that he said was so dear to him, his very People. That same words used in, in, in the book of Acts when we're reading about Stephen who speaks to the high priest and speaks about when Moses killed the Egyptian and thought the Israelites would respond positively to what he did. But instead of them responding positively to Moses, they thrust him aside. Same Greek word. That's what's happening here. When Paul's asking this question, it's near and dear to his heart. And he's not just saying, oh, is God like kind of upset with Israel? No, they're okay. He's saying, has God shoved aside his people, thrown them away? The rhetorical question Paul is asking is a weighty one. And Paul allows no times for his readers to misunderstand. If you see that in verse 1, the moment he asks the question, he answers it. He says, by no means, and it's a, it's a strong negative statement. It's not just like, nah, no, that's not, I feel like that's not true. It's, it's like, God forbid, no, there's, there's no way. Let me be crystal clear. There is absolutely no way God has rejected his people. In other words, it's completely inconceivable that God would renege on his unconditional promises to Israel. And then Paul goes on to say, you want proof? You're looking at him. Uh, I'm an Israelite, he says in verse 1. He reminds us, a descendant of Abraham. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm saved. And Paul knows that in order to prove that God is faithful to his word, he can start with himself. How do I know that God hasn't rejected his people, Paul says? Exhibit A, right here. The fact that I'm a Christian, I know that God has not rejected his people. I'm living proof. And something stood out to me as I reflected on this text in this particular Verse, Paul personally proves that God has not rejected Israel, and he first debunks this myth or even this suspicion 
by looking at what God has done in his own life. That's the first place he goes. He looks at what God has done in his own life. He never ever gets over the saving grace of God or gets used to the fact that he's a Christian. He looks at himself and he says, you want to see if God has rejected his people? He certainly hasn't. Do you know why? Because of what he's done in my life, I'm saved. And if you're a Christian, you're living proof, living proof, friends, that God's word can be trusted. If you're a Christian, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a living, breathing, walking, talking testimony to the fact that God's word can be trusted, that God keeps his promises. Throughout the scriptures, Paul never gets over the fact that he's saved, ever. Uh, In 1 Timothy 1, Paul calls himself the, the chief of sinners. He can't believe that he would be saved. When he looks at his own life, he says, nobody's more sinful than me. In Philippians 3, verses 5 and following, Paul reads what he once thought was a list of reasons he would be counted as righteous. But then at the end of it says this, I had all these things and I still couldn't do it. I still needed to be saved. He never gets over the fact that he was saved. And all of these things are, and more, he remembers of why he's all the more amazed by the grace of God that saved him, that sanctified him, and that continues to give him the courage that he has to stand, the confidence that he has to speak, and the heart that he has to sacrifice for the glory of God. Does God keep his promises? Yes, Paul says. I know because of what he's done in my life. So here's what I want to know this morning. If you're a Christian, first, just a yes or no question. Are you amazed? Are you amazed that you're a Christian? Is grace amazing to you beyond the song, or is it just, is it just grace? It's just grace. It's amazing grace. We sing the song, but it's really not all that amazing. It's really just, just a lyric. Some of us have conversion stories that came about as a series of major life circumstances that God used in order to draw you to himself in a saving way. Paul would definitely be in that category. Others among us were raised in a Christian home and owned multiple Bibles throughout our lives, had regular family devotions, and have been exposed to the word of God for as long as we can remember breathing. But all of us have this in common. For one reason or another, I think we can be tempted to get used to grace. I think we can be tempted to get used to grace. Sometimes we get used to grace because we've had it for a while and we forget the work that God did in saving us. And it's really, you know, it's not that big a deal. It's special. If someone asked you if it's special, you would say yes. But as to how you function and how you operate every day, how you reflect upon your own life and what God's doing in your life, it's it's just life. It's It's not amazing. Other times we look back on our life and we kind of think, We had it coming. Maybe we were raised in a Christian home. Can't remember a day of our life when we weren't just a few days away from attending another church service. And so, yes, we're saved by grace, but it's really not all that amazing because we had it coming because we're, uh, and then you fill, you fill in your last name. I'm a, I'm a LaRufa. My dad was a pastor. And we fill in the reasons why. Yeah, it's amazing, but it's a little less amazing for me. It's more amazing for this guy, but it's a little, it's a little less amazing for, for me. Not Paul. The first thing he does in answering this question is pointing to himself as proof positive that God keeps his promise. 
So what about you? What in your life is proof positive that his work is at work in you? What can you point to in your life to show others that God keeps his promises? Can God's word, can be, can God's word be trusted? You could say, yeah, let me show you how God's word can be trusted. Let me speak to you about what his word has done in my life. I'm not asking if you have all the answers to all the apologetics questions that I think you should have. I'm not asking if you know how to answer every single argument that comes to you. All I want to know is this. Can you point to evidence in your life, personally, of God's word being at work in your life? And you say, here's how I know God keeps his promises. I've read this, and I've seen it to be true. I've read about how he changes people's lives, and I see it to be true in my own life. That's where Paul begins. What about you? Can you look at your life and say, I'm different? God's word has changed me. God's promises have been shown to be true in my life. That's what Paul does. What can you point to in your life to show others that God keeps his promises? That says you can trust him. Paul could say that and categorically rule out the notion that God has rejected Israel. So can you go up to somebody and say, I don't even know that there's a God Someone says, I don't, I don't really think there's a God. And you could say, oh, 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 there most definitely is a God. And let me show you what he's done in my life. Because friends, I would love for you to have answers for every argument, for every question somebody has. But listen to me, nothing, nothing speaks louder and more clearer and has a greater impact than someone who's able to speak about and display a changed life. You can have all the answers in the world to everybody's argument. They're important. I'm not saying put them aside. But when we're talking about people who want to say, is there even a God? Does God even exist? Does he save? Has God rejected this whole earth? And people ask questions, should I even have a baby to bring them into this, what appears to be God-forsaken universe? And you say, oh, yes. Instead of going to all your reasons as to why, uh, why scientifically you can prove this or why you can prove it this way. And I'm not saying those aren't important. They are. I'm just saying the most important thing that you can do in most cases is speak to somebody about the change that God has done in your own life. Can you do that? Can you do that? Friends, that should be something that you would be able to do long before you studied up on how to answer every single attack that's coming in. And I would still encourage you to read and study those things. But let's start where Paul starts. Paul says, right here, verse 1, has God rejected Israel? No. You know how I know? He saved me. He's working in my life. And after proving it personally, Paul goes on to prove it historically. Paul historically proves that God has not rejected Israel. Pick it up in verse 2. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. 
See, the term majority rules is common to us, particularly and especially for those of us who live here in the United States of America, a democratic republic, where in general, most changes brought about or supposed to be brought about in some way, shape or form by a change in the desires of the majority of the people. And I realize that that's a hard thing for us to say right now because of some of the things that have been going on in our country, but Romans 13 is coming and Lord willing, we'll deal with that next year. But suffice it to say... We live in a place where we are very familiar with the term majority rules, the majority rules. And that's fine and good, but you have to understand this. God is all about the minority. God is all about the the remnant. He doesn't need to have the most. Do you know that? He doesn't need to have the most. He works with a remnant and does just fine. He doesn't need to have the most. He doesn't need to have his people outnumber other people. And all throughout the scriptures, you see God shocking people, shocking people as to how he brings about victory for his glory and for the good of his people with just a small little amount of people or with the most unlikely people. As you read through the list of heroes in the Old Testament, as you read through Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, and you see these are the heroes of the faith. And if you dig down deep and look at who these people are, they're nobody. The vast majority of them are not people who would stand out to you. In fact, the vast majority of them have, have, have a sordid past or a shameful past. But God uses them because he's not about using the most likely person. He uses the most unlikely people. People like you. People like me. People like Paul. Paul would eliminate as many people as possible by killing them for the sake of what he said or thought pleased God. Today, we call that terrorism. Paul was a terrorist in his day. God uses him as a key leader in the first century church and writes 13 out of 27 books in the New Testament. God is all about using the least likely people. And he's also not about the majority. He's about the minority. And Paul knows his readers and and knows the circumstances that were surrounding them at the time he wrote this letter. And knows that they must be tempted to think that clearly, in light of what they see, in light of what they've experienced, God is done with his people. So Paul has them go to the tape for a moment and says, do you remember Elijah, and he he reminds them of what's written in 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 10. And he quotes from that portion of scripture. And in that, if you were to look there, you would see that there came a time where Elijah holed up in a cave and and the Lord, the word of the Lord comes to him and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Which God knows what he's doing there, but he's just, he's just starting a conversation with him. And that's when Elijah says, he says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the, uh, the Lord God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now, I'm not saying your life and these days are exactly the same. But can you draw a parallel? I think I feel like sometimes I'm the only one who gives a rip, let alone loves Jesus. I feel like I'm the only one who looks to the word of God, not when we're in church, not when we're in our small group, but just living life. Living life, as you live life, as you interact with people, as you talk with different people, as you see what throngs of people gather for in public. And you think, I know I'm not alone, but it sure can sometimes feel like I'm I'm all alone. And Elijah is saying, this is what has happened. And and I'm 
Uh, and, And they seek my life. They want to take away my life. And then he repeats it again four verses later. But then God responds in verse 18. He says, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. God reminds him, he says, yeah, I know, but guess what? I'm on it. I am unintimidated by everything you've just told me. Everything you've told me is true. I am unintimidated. I am seated in my throne. I am not pacing around the throne room of heaven. I'm on it. And I've got a remnant. I've reserved 7,000 people who have not done the things that you're talking about. I'm on it. God keeps for himself a remnant, not a, not a majority. He doesn't need a majority, just a, a remnant. He'll, he'll more than make up for what's missing in the majority. And he'll keep his promises. And Paul goes on to, to, to show God's providence in what he's doing with Israel for the sake of the gospel. Look at verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they, that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So why does Paul, why does Paul do this? Because they, they, like us, tend to play connect the dots. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it can be awfully tempting to play connect the dots with the circumstances and the events that are going on in our lives, thinking we know, oh, well, because this happened, then this happened, and because this happened, then this happened, so I can't see the end, but I've got a pencil, and I can, it's, it's going to end up this way. Can you prove that? Well, no, but it's going to anyway. Well, do you have that information? Well, no, but, you know, I've, I have enough reason to believe I've spoken to this person, and I can kind of just tell how it's going to end up, and God's shown me this dot, and he's shown me this dot, so it's going to... It's going to end that way. They play connect the dots with the few dots that they have. And so do we. Thinking we have enough to write the story that is unfolding before us, when in reality, we, we simply do not. See, God has written a story that in one sense, we know a lot about. Because like I said in the beginning, we know the end. Right? So that's a pretty good place to start. We know how this is going to end. Jesus is going to win. He who laughs last laughs loudest, and Jesus will win. So we know how this is all going to end. We know that God is going to win in the end. So since we know the end, we know he wins, we take a lot of comfort and peace in that, and we should. And since we know that he wins, we should want him to come back because we want the second coming of Christ. We want Jesus to come back because we know that there is no way that he's going to lose that battle. We're excited about that. However... Sometimes we have circumstances in our lives that I think cause us to forget the end and claim we know things that we just don't know and come to conclusions that we just can't prove. But we say we can, and we think we can, and therefore we forget about how God has acted in the past and become confused about the, tre- the present and don't trust him for tomorrow and the end of the story. So we were recently at a conference, the annual conference for the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors in Louisville. And the, the conference was focused on, it was a wonderful time in the Word, and the, the conference was focused on particularly how to help people uh, who are wrestling with same-sex attraction and how to respond to this 
world and the, uh, the, the homosexual agenda that seems to be just pushing forward and forward and forward. And not just how to respond to it and how to put a stop to it, but how to offer hope and help from God's word. How to respond compassionately but, but still stand on God's truth and not fall into one ditch or another ditch. And one of the speakers said, we need to remember ourselves as counselors and remind our counselees and particularly remind our parents Particularly remind, not our parents, but particularly remind parents who are wrestling with this with their children, that today is only part of the story. It is not the whole story. Does that make sense? Today, right now, is not the whole story. It's only part of the story. And the circumstances that surrounded the people of Rome as Paul penned this letter were not the whole story. That's what Paul reminds them of. Today is only part of the story, and the end has been written by God, but isn't known in its entirety by man. Today is part of the story, but not the whole story. So it causes me to think about my own life and to also offer you this question. In what areas of your life are you tempted to write your own ending to the story based on what little, little, you can know and see today. Where are you connecting the dots on your own when in reality you have very little dots to work with? Where have you forgotten that today, does that question make sense? Where have you forgotten that today is only part of the story? Not the whole story. Let me ask you something even more specific to maybe help you think through this. Where in your life are you saying the following? Can God do this? Sure. God can do anything. I mean, he probably won't. Can God do this? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a silly question. Of course God can do this. I don't think he's gonna, buddy, but he can. But I don't think he's gonna because here's what I see. And I see, I know, I know it was, this happened and then this happened and they responded this way. So can God change that? Yeah, I mean, he could, but odds are. Right, because all of a sudden God has a betting line? Odds are. Where in your life are you tempted to use that faulty logic? The prodigal child that you long to see come to Christ, but she hasn't turned to him, and you in your finite mind, you just can't imagine that ever happening. It would be so unlike her. And you've, you've, you've poured so much blood, sweat, and tears into your son and want nothing more than to see him walk with Jesus. And from, but from all outward appearances, it's just not good. Can God do that? Yeah, 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 Peter. Yes, he can. He parted the Red Sea. He could surely save my son. But he probably, he's probably not going to. Maybe you'd never say that out loud, but you think it. Yes, mm. He can do that. He's not going to, but he can. Yes. Mm. Today's part of the story. Not, not the whole. The type of marriage you desire, but, but don't have. The, the struggle you long to be freed from, but don't see an end to. The unsaved family member or neighbor or friend you know is bound for hell, but so desperately want to see in heaven. But it's been a long time. But you only know part of the story 
where are you tempted to say, based on this, I, I can pattern God. I like to say this. I was trying to think if I've been saying it for a while. Surely it's not. I don't remember where I read it or if I read it or it's probably there's nothing original under the sun. So I don't know where I got this, but it's been helpful. God is working. And sometimes he lets us watch. You understand that? God is working. God is working. Sometimes he lets you watch. Sometimes he lets you see. Sometimes you can see what he's doing. Wow, look at what God is doing. But do you realize how many things God is doing that you don't have a clue? That you don't have a clue about. You don't have a, you don't have an, a clue at all. You say, well, if I don't, we're not a people who walk by sight. We don't walk by, we don't only know what God's doing because we can see what God is doing. At any given time, God is doing an incalculable number of things on this planet in the lives of people that you and I would never be aware of. God is always working. Sometimes he's very kind in letting us watch. But he's always working. And time doesn't allow us to unpack the entire chapter. But Paul explains that God has a greater purpose in the hardening of Israel, namely to reach Gentiles with the gospel. So take a look at verse 13 as we read through through verse 24. Paul says, now I'm speaking to you as Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my Ministry, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, I love that, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, Don't be arrogant toward the branches. See what he's saying there? He's saying, don't be arrogant. You are grafted in. You are this wild olive shoot that is now connected. You as a Gentile believer, don't be arrogant toward the others. Don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Verse 19, then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you are cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? And Paul goes on to remind us of the ever-present element of mystery in God's sovereignty and election. Friends, as you read through your Bibles, this is not a cop-out. Okay, some of you are going to think, and Peter punts, and it's good. This is not a, this is not a cop-out. But you can't read your Bible saying, I can understand it all. There is an element of mystery that is within the pages of Scripture that causes us to respond in a way that we're going to talk about. But anytime we say, yeah, I pretty much got this thing down. I mean, I've read it a lot, and I've, I've, I'm kind of a big deal. I, I think I can understand every single aspect of it. I think there's a lot that you can explain 
I also think sometimes people hide behind the name mystery when they don't want to face something clear. That's a separate issue. That's really mysterious. It's, uh, actually, it's not. You just don't like it. That's not mysterious. You just don't want to, oh, it's a mystery. Not a mystery. Some things are very clear. I would go so far as to say most things are very clear. God doesn't speak in a way that he wants to use like coded language. The raven flies at noon. What did he really mean? He doesn't do that. He speaks very clearly in his word to his people. Having said that, there's a lot of mystery. A lot of mystery. And Paul here in verse 25 says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this what? Mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. You say, that kind of confuses me. I say, see previous line. It's a mystery. So it's not going to be completely clear. Not going to be completely clear. Verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. Excuse me. And he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So I put in your outline, and you'll see there a quote from a study Bible I have. And it says this, the statement that all Israel will be saved, Romans 11, verses 26 and following, may foretell a mass conversion of Jews. Or it may assert the salvation of all the remnant that's spoken of back in verse 5 of God's people, that is Israel, in the spiritual sense, right? Because you recall that in Romans 2, we are told that not everyone who's of the circumcision is of Israel. Romans 9, verses 6 and following says, not all of them who say they're of Israel are of Israel or who, who are biologically of Israel are of God's family. But whatever the case, the effects of God's election of Abraham's descendants, however they are defined, are permanent. That's what I want you to understand based on the text today and based on the scriptures. When you look at verses 28 and following, you read this. As regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So what we take away from this chapter, if you want to get up and down and into the details, and I'm not saying that's not a fun conversation to have and a good conversation to have, that's fine. Understand that Paul, who's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who is God, says it's a mystery. So it's always going to be a mystery. So I would be a little wary of when you say it's not a mystery to me because the Holy Spirit says it's a mystery. So it's like you versus him. You don't want to, you don't want to say that I, it's crystal clear to me when God says it's a mystery. But either way, what you can take away from this as you wrestle through this and as you try to figure out what God means exactly when it comes to who is Israel and his plan for Israel, the bottom line remains the same. Do you see that? That the calling of God is irrevocable in verse 29. God's purpose in election, God's plan in saving people, God's plan in bringing glory to himself, God's plan in redeeming for himself his people comes to pass either way. And the calling of God is irrevocable. And there's no geopolitical event that's ever going to take place that's going to change God's plan. So God's plan is irrevocable for his people. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and following says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. It's one of the, one of the most memorized, quoted scriptures in all of scripture, particularly among children. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Everyone stops there. Do you know the very next verse? 
Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Think of something in your life for which you have little to no answer for or explanation for. Maybe it's something in the scriptures. Maybe it's a circumstance in your own life. And you think, God could reveal this to me. He could make it clear for me. I'll confess to you, I wrestle with this when I lose my keys. The sovereign God in heaven who knows where they are, could he not throw me a bone? Just show me where they are. And it's kind of funny. It does show my heart's reaction to the fact that God knows things and I do not. It does show my reaction to mystery. That's a silly thing. What about something that's much, much more weighty? What about the salvation of my kids? Uh, What about um, my concern for certain people in my life? What about my own life? What about the scripture that's laid before us here? As God allows things to remain mysterious, how might he be working in you to keep you from becoming wise in your own eyes? Be not wise in your own eyes. That's what Paul says when he says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. And I'm just curious, as I thought about that, and I thought, what else is God doing in my life that he's choosing to allow to remain a mystery that he has? He's not confused. I thoroughly am. He's not confused. Where is he working in my life by keeping this thing that I'm dying to know all to himself, not because he's mad at me, not because he wants to smite me, not because he wants to frustrate me. He's a good dad. He doesn't provoke me. But he keeps it to himself because it causes me to trust him. And he keeps it to himself because it causes me to look at him and say, I don't know, and I don't have to know, and I know you know, and that's good enough for me. Even though I don't know, I'm not going to get frustrated and try to pry it out of his hands, We stand there before the Lord and we say, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? God is working. That which is a mystery remains a mystery, but God is sovereign and working. And finally, to wrap it up as Paul wraps it up, God's personal, historical, providential, mysterious ways leave us in grateful, joyful awe. And I want you to look at how he ends this chapter a way that uh, Pastor Brad, Lord willing, will be focusing on over the next couple of weeks. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul doesn't end frustrated. Paul doesn't end saying, well, hey, let me warn you. It's going to be a mystery. And I'm half ticked, so you're going to be ticked. So, hey, heads up. Heads up. 
Hope you're sitting down. This is not going to be good. He doesn't end there. He says, this is mysterious. Here's the deal. This is mysterious. But hey, let me bring it back. Let me bring it around full circle. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of knowledge of God. And then somebody might be tempted to respond. Yeah, I know. I can't even see them. Yes, I know. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable. They're not, he doesn't say, yeah, I can't see a, a thing. I, his ju- I can't search through. He says, oh, this is awesome. It's so awesome that his judgments are unsearchable. His ways are inscrutable. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? This causes Paul to look and not be frustrated with God, but to fall before the Lord in awe and say, you know so much. You are doing so much. I'm in awe of you. Who knows your mind? Who can give you advice and counsel and help? Oh, to you be glory. To you be honor. To you be wisdom. To you may your name be magnified, not mine. Less of me, more of you. Amen.